Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Food and Drink Federation podcast. My name's David Thompson. I'm the Chief Exec of the FDF in Scotland, and it's my uh, great pleasure to be the host of uh, the last podcast uh, from our current Chief Executive, Ian Wright, a person I've had the great pleasure and good fortune of working with for most of the seven years that he's been in charge of the FDF. So, Ian, welcome. Thank you, David, and the check's in the post. (laughs) So this is the um, this is your last ever um, podcast. So I'll have a few questions to ask you at the end of the podcast. But as ever, uh, it's also a useful way to update listeners on what is happening. So um, as we would should normally ask almost every week in the fast paced world of food and drink, Ian, what on earth is going on? Well, that's a really good question, and I think anybody trying to follow recent events would be forgiven for being confused. Um, I think what I think the, the key things uh, that we probably need to untangle here are the government's uh, ever-changing approach to managing the COVID crisis as the uh, Omnicom or whatever it's called variant uh, takes hold across the UK in different at different levels of concern in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say, um, and. Against that background, what does what what does that mean for the food and drink industry as we approach our, you know, our busiest and most important selling season of Christmas? And what does it mean for uh, food and drink policy as made by government? And of course, the, the sort of single biggest uh, event of the last 24 hours is the whopping uh, rebellion by Tory MPs against the government's restrictions. Now, it makes no difference to the proposed restrictions going through, and indeed they've, they've started today. But it does make a difference, I think, of a very serious kind to the government's room for manoeuvre on future restrictions. And those potential future restrictions have, poten- have potentially a very big impact on our industry. So, so that's one thing that we might talk about. And then the other thing is, uh, what does what do the COVID, what does the sweeping kind of growth of Omnicom mean for our industry more generally? And we might start there. So, so my my observation about about the new variant is that rather like the government's policy making, we don't quite yet know what we're dealing with. So it's clear that Omnicom is hugely more transmissible than previous. Uh, variants, although I'm told it's actually pretty similar in its transmissibility to the original variant at, right at the start of the crisis, whatever the alpha one was, um, and that it's uh, that it. What we don't know is how dangerous it is, and there is a bit of evidence from South Africa where it appear, appears to have originated that although it's highly transmissible, it's also much milder in its impacts and in its potential death rates than uh, previous variants. So um, until we know that for sure, of course, it's impossible to make policy on yeah. that basis. 
but what the Tory MPs, this is where it's sort of abut, where the, the, the disease abuts with the politics. So what the Tory MPs were essentially saying last night was, or what a hundred of them were saying was, it's mad to make policy uh, and impose pretty draconian restrictions and with the threat of more, even more draconian restrictions without knowing whether we're dealing with something that is uh, very serious at all levels or whether it has characteristics which actually significantly mitigate the danger it poses. And what public health experts say is we can't take the risk. So essentially, you've got a, a conflict between a political decision on risk management and a public health decision on minimizing the downside uh, of this. And in particular, I think the, you know, the public health experts always have in mind the fear that the NHS won't be able to cope. Whereas the politicians have in mind, or some politicians have in mind, the fear that business won't be able to cope. Uh, and I think that's probably the best way of looking at this. Um, now, this is a pretty intractable problem. I think what last night's vote almost certainly means is that in England, at least, it's not possible for the government to go any further for some time, if at all. Uh, and I think it would require literally the NHS to be uh, to have kind of imploded for those hundred Tory MPs to be prepared to vote for any further restrictions or indeed to vote for these to be continued after three or four weeks. Um, and why is that important? Because clearly the Labour Party and the other parties can vote this through. Well, something I, I, I think I'm right in saying, that no Tory Prime Minister, and probably I think no Prime Minister uh, since the war, who has been, has had a major piece of their policy carried only because the opposition voted for it, whereas a large number of their own voters voted against it. So, no, I think I'm right in saying that no post-war prime minister who basically survived on the opposition's votes in a big major piece of policy lasted longer than a further six months. So I think if I go back, if we go back to Wilson, to Callaghan, to uh, Heath, to Major and to May, all of those lost votes made most famously on a European legislation, all of those lost votes uh, and, or, and or were sustained only by the opposition and all of them were out of office within six months. And I think that's the thing that most will be worrying the, the, the managers in Downing Street, that, that this just looks terrible for the current prime minister. And with the prospect, um, apparently, although I think this is a bit too early to call it, but with the prospect of what sounds like a pretty big defeat looming in uh, North Shropshire tomorrow night, where a Leave constituency might pass uh, to the Liberal Democrats, partly because the opposition votes concentrate around one party and partly because the intervention of Richard Tice and the former Nigel Farage Reform Party could get as many as 15% of the vote. I think that really suggests that, that that's a second major concern for the Prime Minister 
Um, and then there are two others which are looming before Christmas, but not necessarily before Parliament recesses, which is, of course, today, actually, so very unlikely to be before today. But um, uh, we know that the two, uh, the uh, permanently, what's he called, the head of the civil services um, inquiry into the four parties in Downing Street is likely to report before Christmas. And it seems very likely that he's going to have to find an extremely elegant way to not indict the Prime Minister for breaking the law. I think what Keir Starmer said the other day about it's pretty clear that the Prime Minister has at least technically broken the law is probably right. I mean, mm. Keir Starmer's a bit unlikely, an unlikely person to get that kind of thing wrong. And then, uh, and what happens with that? And then the final piece of this particular jigsaw is Lord Guy, the, the, the Prime Minister's standards advisor, who apparently is incandescent that it, the Prime Minister has, if, if inadvertently, question mark, uh, misled him about the famous wallpaper rail. And it seems likely that Lord Guy, once, the, once he's uh, been satisfied that that is the case, won't resign, will resign. I think he will resign. And all of those together are to give the Prime Minister a terrible look. So this could be a very tumultuous uh, couple of weeks. That's exactly what I was going to say, tumultuous. And, and interestingly, of course, in, in Scotland, where the First Minister of Scotland has gone further in terms of the um, restrictions placed on, on, on people that, than down south, without the revolt, even with the Tories voting for um, the, the changes in the restrictions up here, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting to observe just the, the level of chaos um, uh, at the heart of government in, in, in Westminster. Yes, and I think it, it is very interesting that, that, I mean, against all of this, there is the, I think it is worth saying that, that talking, uh, as I was yesterday, to a large number of people in the hospitality industry who, who were together for their annual dinner, or lunch, sorry, and talking to our members particularly, there is a degree of incredulity uh, amongst all of those in the food industry, that these restrictions have gone through without anybody pointing out that it is effectively a lockdown in central metropolitan districts and therefore means that customers of restaurants and, uh, and bars and other uh, food to go, food or away from home food facilities and indeed supermarkets in central metropolitan districts are, are now virtually non-existent. And the viability of those businesses and their survival is seriously in question, particularly as we now don't have any support mechanisms. So there's no money of any kind available for these guys. And I was talking to one guy who runs 13 bars in the city and in central London, city of London and central London, who told me that by the end of last week after the prime minister's announcement, uh, his takings were 70% down. And I said to him, so what do you do? He said, well, I'm going to have to shut them all. Uh, and I just won't be able to pay my staff at all. Um, I'll just have to lay them all off um, because I just don't have any cash. You know, these businesses are run on a cash in, cash out basis. And if, I, if I'm not getting the cash in, I can't run them, run them uh, at all. And, you know, that, that will there won't be a massive number of jobs, but that will be a significant number of jobs gone, a number of livelihoods gone and a pretty rubbish Christmas for those families. And I think there is a degree of literally incredulity amongst quite a lot of business leaders and it's not just food and drink it's other business leaders that the economic impact of this has not been factored in in any way to the calculation um 
And I, I do think at some point the, the failure of what should be if the Tories were playing their traditional role of being the party of business to do anything to protect business is going to come home to roost. Um, now, I don't know how that will be, but I do think it's quite a serious point. And, and how do you think um, this, you've talked there about the impact on hospitality, and how do you think this will play out in the kind of food and drink manufacturing chain? Well, the danger for us, of course, is that, is that when we went into the crisis, uh, we, in, in March 2020, uh, you could say that 70% of our production in food and drink manufacturing went, in through, went to customers through retail or consumers through retail, and 30% went to diners and consumers through what I call away from home. So contract catering, food to go, sandwich shops, takeaways and so on, and uh, hospitality. Now, even, even now, when, or rather three weeks ago, when hospitality had significantly recovered and food to go had significantly reappeared and contract catering was probably going at ev- almost in, it, in its previous form at workplaces and at venues. Uh, even then, I suspect the proportion had got back only to about 80-20. And, and through most of the lockdowns, it was 98-2. Um, and the problem for that, and people say, well, why does that matter? Well, the truth is it matters because the margin, uh, the, the financial margins, are so much better in those away from home sectors. So it, it, we make far more money as an industry through those sectors, food to go, contract catering and hospitality than we do through retail. And the more the retailers, uh, the bigger proportion of food and drink manufacturing that retailers, for which retailers account, you know, the bigger proportion of which of it going to them, the, the worse it is for the profitability of our businesses. And that's the real concern here, that what you will end up with, not just during these lockdowns or semi-lockdowns, but also afterwards, is a system where, for practical purposes, retail is even more dominant than it has been traditionally as a customer of our products. And it means that you're handing the retailers, and in particular Tesco, with a massive hold over the industry. Uh, And as I've said on a number of occasions without sort of taking this too far, going forward, we will probably see three, if not four of the major four retailers in the hands of uh, American private equity firms. And that will be mean that those firms, those, those guys make their money through an even greater focus on cost cutting than we see at the moment. And that will be even more difficult for our members. So our members are, are going to be faced with the prospect of making even less money than they currently make uh, as a result of these two developments, partly the COVID legacy and partly the ownership structure of British supermarkets. Yeah, so, so it plays into that. Um, it plays into the hands of the, the retailers and, and uh, yeah. removes diversification from businesses yes. and, and, and different ways to make profit. Um, is there anything else that's going on that you want to pick up on before I before I start to grill you on your career? <laughs> um, well, I think we are going to see, I don't know if it's come out yet, but today, as we're talking, it's likely that the government is going to issue its first ever food, national food security report. 
Um, this will be largely, I think, a, a, a kind of expert document uh, on the, the, the nature of food security in this country. But it will give fuel to the debate about whether we should be more self-sustained in food production, whether we should have such a great reliance on imported food, a particular concern of the NFU and of others that, that we import too much, we could make so much more of our, our own. Um, I have a slightly different view on that, which is that as, a, as, as someone who was a veteran of a business which did make a product which was pretty much exclusively exported uh, to the great benefit of the UK, I think it's quite difficult to argue for fewer imports and also argue for more exports because you, you know, you're basically saying do as I say, not as I do. And that's never a good look. Um, but I do think it's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting document and it, it, it commits the government to doing this every year. So we'll be able to monitor the nature of food security in the UK. And I think that's that's going to be important. And then the other thing to say is that um, as we approach Christmas, I think the practical effect of COVID uh, could yet still have a hand in, in what sort of Christmas supplies we have. Uh, it's not a problem today. Uh, indeed, a call yesterday revealed that, that absence rates in most food manufacturers seem to be below 5%, which is, you know, tolerable. But if, if COVID pinging and indeed the incidence of infection were to start climbing as rapidly as some of the more apocalyptic suggestions uh, would, would, would lead you to believe in terms of absence, whether it's because you're infected or because you've been in contact with someone who's infected, um, there is just, I think, the possibility that we could see uh, the we could see some significant shortages occurring uh, towards the end of next week. Uh, I think if we don't see that level of absence climbing before the weekend and we get into the middle of next week before it starts to climb, I think that will mean there isn't so much of a problem for Christmas, but it will be one that we have to come back to either between Christmas and New Year or in the New Year. And we might then, together with the other shortages driven by labour, the unavailability of labour, I think we might then see some quite serious impacts on shelf and uh, on the menu in, uh, in, in away from home dining. And that will, again, put a lot of strain on the system. But we have to wait and see on that to see what happens with the, with the, uh, with the unavailability of people because they've either been pinged or infected. Uh, and it, I suspect it will end up being slightly more manageable in manufacturing because lots and lots of manufacturers have moved to cohorting of people on the factory floor and they put in place a lot of protections which mean that although some teams may go down the whole system won't necessarily whole factory won't necessarily go down i think that may be a bit easier to manage in factories than it is in retail and in uh in restaurants and bars and and certainly one of the concerns yesterday talking to a lot of bar owners was that they they are very worried that they're already running pretty thin in terms of labor you only need two or three people in a pub or a restaurant taken out and you simply can't staff the place so you have to close and if you're short of cash and the, the christmas cash flow is what you're you know desperately waiting 
for what you're desperately waiting, that is a pretty grim prospect. So, lots to lots to look forward to. It doesn't ever <laughs> let up. Um, but now looking back, um, 31st of December sees uh, the end of your tenure at the Food and Drink Federation after um, seven years. And I've got just a few questions just to, just to prompt some reflection from you. Nothing too hard, I hope, Ian. Um, uh, and the first one really is, what do you think has been your highlight of working um, at the FDF? Well, the highlight for me is is leaving it in, in good shape for Karen Betts, my excellent successor. Um, and that is uh, particularly the case in terms of, I think, the way that members view us. And uh, uh, that's kind of uh, objectively correct in the sense that we survey our members regularly and we can tell where they are satisfied and where they're not. Um, and they seem to be happy with the level of, or re- most of them seem to be happy most of the time with the level of representation we offer them. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. I'm obviously proud of the fact that we, uh, not that I'm obsessed with the numbers, but that we've uh, increased the membership of the organisation from 164 companies with several in the throes of resigning when I took over to over a thousand today and growing with the prospect of a number of other extensions to that number uh that's the second thing i'm obviously very proud of that and i'm very proud of the fact that we now speak for most sectors across the uk food and drink manufacturing uh industry with the possible exception of we're we're slightly underweight in dairy and we're slight and we're a bit more underweight in meat but everywhere else we're pretty strong and we have both sectoral balance but also size balance so we have some of the country's biggest food companies but we also have hundreds of of one person two person ten person uh, businesses which is very very exciting so all of that is great and then the final thing i would say is i'm particularly proud of the fact that our leadership team uh is now made up of uh, with the exception david of yourself and peter um, Pete Robinson in Robinson in uh, Wales, who both inevitably came from outside the leadership team because we didn't really have properly developed organisations in Scotland and Wales uh, when I came into the role. Um, but the rest of the leadership team is made up of people who were here when I started, but were buried deep in the organisation under layers of um, not terribly efficient management. And... Um, I'm very proud that we've got that team together. Interestingly, all women. Um, but it's it's fantastic for the, the health of the organisation. And, and the last point I make on people is that I think our 70-strong organisation, uh, 60 of them in London, 10 of the eight of them, I think, with you in Scotland, two of them in Wales, is massively more impressive and professional than it was when I started and i think it's fantastic for us that it seems like every time somebody leaves and of course people do leave often to join our members or to join uh, other complementary organizations every time somebody leaves it does seem that at the moment we're able to recruit somebody even better um not you know most of the time anyway and that's that's very good news as well so i'm i'm very proud of that Yes, and uh, um, I second that. My colleagues are absolutely excellent, and it's a joy to work with them across the whole organisation. And that's uh, down to your um, nurturing of so many people, which is uh, which has been fabulous. Um, talked about highlights there. Any regrets? 
Um, well, I'm not somebody who who dwells necessarily on uh, on regrets. I do think you should learn your lessons from failures, but um, I think the reason that your eyes are where they are is so you can look forward. Um, and you know, your whole face looks forward, doesn't it? It doesn't really look back. Uh, and so, I think that's a bit of a clue to the what to what we should be doing. Um, I suppose I, I regret that we've had to spend so much time on issues that, well, in one case, Brexit was self-inflicted, and in the other case, COVID was probably, it's, I think it's fair to say that we weren't properly prepared, either as an organisation or, um, or as a country. Uh, and, you know, those, those are, it's regrettable that we, are, we have ended up playing catch-up on those two issues. Uh, and I, I, you know, I take some responsibility. I take no responsibility for having to deal with Brexit. Um, but I, and I, you know, I couldn't. I could. I'd, I'd be less than honest if I, if I'm omitted to say that it's been a fantastic uh, breeding ground and, and membership gaining ground for the FDF. You know, um, arguably disastrous for the country, but great for the FDF. So that's fine, isn't it? Um, which of course isn't. Um, I think COVID, I, I, if I'd thought about it, I think I might have done a few things differently. And I, I was one of those, I did, I did, I think I reacted pretty quickly. We reacted pretty quickly. But I did, I do now think, uh, funny enough, I don't know if any of our listeners have ever watched Apple TV's The Morning Show, uh, which is the thing with uh, Jennifer Aniston and uh, Reese Witherspoon. And it's it's very it's about a breakfast TV show in the States. And these two women are very big stars and it's about their trials and tribulations. But it, this series, uh, the second series, has focused significantly on the on the the months between dis, December 2019 and the early part of 2020. And it's been very cleverly done in the way that the covid starts as a cloud no bigger than a person's hand and ends up as being the all-enveloping thing and theme of, of the programme every day. And it, it does, if you watch it closely, you just sit there and think, God, I should have thought of that. You know, I did see that happen. I should have thought of that. I did see that it was there. Why didn't we react then rather than three weeks later? And and it's that's a bit of a lesson, I think, for all of us, but but for me as well. So that would be a regret, I guess. And the, the benefits of hindsight are are, are fabulous, aren't they? they, they you can yeah. see these different things. And um, a really interesting segue there, because obviously yeah, you're talking about a breakfast television show, and and you are known for your copious amounts of media appearances. Um, what do you think the most bizarre one has been in your time at the FDF? Oh my goodness, that's a really good question. Oh, probably with Nigel Farage on GB News, I think. Um, I mean, that it, it, in itself, it's a ludicrous idea that, that there are so many bits of that that are just wrong. So Nigel Farage presenting a mainstream news programme on a British television channel ought to be wrong. Um, me appearing to be interviewed by him is even wronger if that's a proper word. And the ultimate part of that that was so wrong was that we spent most of our time agreeing. 
Um, and uh, that was deeply troubling. Uh, it, probably not to him, but certainly to me. So, uh, yeah, that was that was weird. <laughs> um, and then I had a very funny experience a few days later, which I may relate to our listeners. So I happened to be at a party with a very good friend and ran into a very good friend of mine. Some listeners, older, older, older viewers and listeners will remember um, a, a very successful and lovely British athlete called Alan Pascoe, uh, who won a silver medal, I think, in the uh, hurdles, 400 metre hurdles in 1976. He was captain of the UK athletics team for years. Very, very famous runner and then uh, uh, even more successful as a businessman in sports sponsorship anyway alan is a very long-standing friend and i happened to be talking to him at this party when farage walked in looking amazing i have to say i don't know he must have a personal trainer and somebody who sprays on the town because he's kind of he's kind of walnut colored um and and pasco says to farage hello farage he says in a rather sort of peremptory way, to which Farage amazingly replies, ah, good evening, sir. And they have this sort of routine where they're doing this. And then Farage turns away to talk to somebody else. And I say to Alan, why on earth does he call you sir? And he said, and Alan said, well, you probably don't know this, but I used to teach him geography in my brief period <laughs> as a teacher at Dulwich College. I thought you were a PE teacher. I was, he said, but I had to double up and I had to do geography. So by which time Farage has turned back to us and I said to him and he says, yes, that's right. Alan taught me uh, geography at, um, at Dulwich. And I'm very proud that my that I said straight away, is that why you don't know where Europe is? <laughs> and that was the end of a beautiful friendship. It was. Yeah, yeah. No, Farage <laughs> thought it was very funny. Uh, I don't think Alan was quite as impressed with my view of his teaching skills. But anyway. That's great. So the question I've been told not to ask um, uh, is uh, is the question that everyone wants to know. What's next for Ian Wright? Well, I don't know is the answer, um, but uh, I hope there will be something next. Um, you know, I hope there's not just a and that you know, and just like that to quote the new Sex in the City uh, uh, series. Dot dot dot. Um, well, I'm I'm I think it will be a it will be a plural career um i would do another job if one came along uh i won't do another trade association because that wouldn't be right uh, i might help the odd trade association try and focus its activities in a you know drawing on the fantastic story we have to tell collectively at the fdf um but i'm not going to do that but I, I would do another job if somebody offered me one i think it's a bit unlikely at, at my age and at this range um so i think it's going to be plural uh, I've got one job where I'm uh, deputy chairman of a of a consultancy, which is essentially a, in the middle of a sale, or soon to embark on a sale process. So I'm helping them sharpen their offer. Uh, I'm not going to do client facing work, uh, at least not to start with. Um, I've got another potential role with another advisory firm and I'm in for a uh, I can't say which, but I'm in for a government job uh, chairing a government body. But it doesn't look to me as though that's going to come off. So I'm available for weddings, funerals and bar mitzvahs uh, by request. Um, and if anybody out there has the slightest inclination to uh, to think about me in in, in terms of uh, some kind of role, I'd be I'm willing to listen to approaches. Um, but I think it will end up being a sort of plural career. 
doing maybe three, maybe four days a week. Um, and uh, hopefully doing things that are closely associated with the food industry. Excellent. So that was a free advert for Ian Wright PLC. So this is it, the last word. Um, do you have any advice for the FDF and for our loyal band of podcast listeners? Well, my advice for the FDF is that I, and, and David, you will remember this because I said it at something we were both at last week. Um, my advice for the FDF is very clear. It's a great organization. It has taken its place as one of the most important and most influential uh, business representative organizations in the UK economy. Uh, I would argue that it's on the way to being the most effective uh, of those organizations. And certainly all the evidence of our relationships with government, media, other stakeholders is, uh, is there. I mean, it's not a coincidence and it's not down to my brilliant performances that I've done 320 broadcast interviews from the 1st of January 2020 through till the end of this year. Um, that is actually an indication of how important food and drink is to the UK economy and to UK newsmakers and or news program makers, and that the yes that the FDF has become the main point of contact on so many of those issues is down to excellent work by our policy teams and our press office, and also the simple fact that our members and the business they do is so critical to everybody in this country. So we have a franchise that we can leverage. And I, my advice and my strong wish is that we do so and that we do so by being even more ambitious. I think we should not be scared of the environment in which we find ourselves I don't think we should be overly cautious about the issues that face us. I think we should always be polite. I think we should always be respectful. But I think we should always be pretty unyielding in our willingness to put the case for food and drink uh, at its most, at its clearest and at its most compelling. Um, and I think that's an absolutely critical thing for us. We must not withdraw into our shell or into the kind certainly not into the kind of preemptive cringe which was the previous position of the organization you know it couldn't see a parapet without ducking beneath it and i'm i'm not someone who does that i'm someone who believes strongly in being out there and, and taking a point of view and i pay great tribute to uh, Fiona Kendrick, Dame Fiona Kendrick, who was the chair uh, president who appointed me to Gavin Darby, who was who sustained us through very difficult days in in the mid part of my period in office and to John Woods in the last two years. Uh, and they've really played a vital role together with the board and the president's committee. So I'm, I, that's my main piece of advice for the, for the organization. Be ambitious, be brave, be courageous and be clear. And, you know, take a point of view. Um, and I guess my um, my last word would be that it's been an absolute privilege, pleasure and most of all, an honour to be in this role for the UK food and drink industry over the last seven years. 
it's been an even bigger honour to represent all our member companies who have been astonishingly tolerant of, um, of me almost all the time. And where there has been criticism, uh, uh, it's been almost always completely constructive um, and even in one case, pretty animated. But uh, one of my critics is pretty animated about it, but has always been incredibly respectful and has always had the best interests of both his business and our industry at heart. And I, I really welcome that. So it's been a, a pleasure to do it and an honour to lead also to lead such a wonderful team of people of whom, David, of course, you're one. And, you know, you asked earlier, what is my biggest source of pride and the, and the other thing I am really proud of is that we've established a really first class organisation in Scotland under your leadership um, and we're in the process of doing that in Wales under Pete Robertson and I just think that is it's fantastic that we have been able to do that in both places and it took us a bit of time to get going in Wales but in Scotland the fact that we're so far ahead and so well respected is very much down to you in that role and your fantastic connections. And in a way, it's a sort of microcosm of what I hope the FDF is everywhere and will continue to be. And, and I, I, you know, I've said this, my last thought is that I've said this on all of the occasions I've spoken to people over the last three or four weeks. So wherever I am in the world, I will be watching the FDF wishing it so very well and wanting it to win. And if I can do anything to help that over the years to come, then I'll be the first in the queue to do so. Thank you, and that was very kind, and it's been an absolute pleasure. What very fitting uh, last uh, last words on this, on this podcast. Um, uh, it's been an honour to work with you, and, uh, you know, uh, the FDF will miss you. You're, you've been a titan of the organisation. Sustainably powering the food and drink sectors.